Heavenly Father, I thank you for the work that you have already accomplished. That our Savior was born, that he lived his perfect life in this world, that he died on the cross in our place, and that he rose from the dead, that he intercedes now for his people. And Father, as surely as you have accomplished those things, may we hold on to certain hope of what you will do for our joy and faith and our perseverance. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would work this morning to use what is proclaimed in this message unto that end. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. The past three Sundays we've looked into the hope God's people had for their coming Messiah a branch that would bud from the seemingly decimated stump of Jesse's house, a king from David's line who would restore the land, purify his people, and fill the whole world with God's presence as his people glorify him. We've seen that while Jesus' first appearing fulfilled the hopes of God's people, we still have not yet witnessed the complete fulfillment of God's promises concerning the branch. We still live in a world of sin and suffering where we daily are reminded that God's plan for history is not fully and finally realized. So now, like God's Old Testament people, we wait for Jesus to come. And our wait, much like theirs, can often seem long. And just as they struggled with that long wait, our long wait can lead to desperation or despair, even to giving in to sin. So just as God did for His Old Testament people who longed for Jesus' first appearing, He gives us exhortations, comforts, and warnings while we wait for Jesus' return. In the book of Revelation, God chose shows John a prophetic picture of Jesus that illuminates and expands on the promises given to the Israelites before Jesus was born. As the prophets taught God's people to hope for His first appearing, Revelation teaches us the hope that we can have as we wait for His return. Most of us are aware that Revelation, perhaps more than any other book, has seen much disagreement between Christians who love and trust God's Word regarding how certain details correspond to certain events or fulfillments. This has often led to Revelation being given a significant spotlight in the attention of Christians, or to Christians doing their best to ignore it and run away fearfully from its prophecies. It is good for Christians to reason together with the help of the Spirit to best understand what these prophecies correspond with. Just as the Old Testament prophets inquired of the Spirit after they received their visions to try and understand the hows and the whys of Jesus' first appearing. However, as was true with the Old Testament prophecies, we should also recognize that Revelation at its heart gives a clear and undeniable message its prophecies are given in these vivid, epic symbols to convey the reality of big and beautiful truth, conveying it even better than a simple relation of facts and timelines would. God gives us this truth to shepherd us, 
And it would be horrible for us to miss or ignore that truth, even if we had not yet understood everything the details correspond with. Revelation is a message of hope. And it's a hope that we as the people of Christ need. The people waiting for Him. It's a hope given for our encouragement, exhortation, and guarding as we are faced with loss and pain and pandemics and isolating lockdowns and loneliness and despair and a world that can often feel hopeless. So this morning, I want to walk through the broad strokes of Revelation to demonstrate the great and certain truths that we can place our hope in as we wait for the appearing of the branch of David and the coming to fruition of all of the promises that have been made about him. The book of Revelation was written to seven churches in the Greek province of Asia, which is modern Turkey. Each of them was waiting for the return of Christ, and most of them were facing some degree of tribulation or persecution from the Roman Empire, Greek culture, or unconverted Jews. And the different churches were responding to this waiting and this tribulation in different ways. Some were enduring with patience and holiness, but they were getting weary, and they were longing for relief from their pain. Others had become lax in their holiness. Some had given in to false prophets and teachers and compromised with the culture around them and they were close to being completely destroyed. So for all of these churches together, for their comfort or for their warning in a world where the odds seem to be stacked against them, Jesus delivers a miraculous vision from God through John. Let's read Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 19. Chapter 1, verses 9 to 19. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. 
The vision that John is given for these suffering churches begins with this glorious revelation of Jesus himself. His appearance is meant to convey his incomparable power, his wisdom, his ultimate authority. Jesus, who appears as a son of man, declares himself also to be God, the first and the last, and died and risen again. He is standing in the midst of the seven lampstands, which represent the seven churches. This is assurance to those churches that their glorious Savior is in their midst, even now, even in their suffering. He is already and He is always the King and Comforter of His people. Then He commissions John to write, and the primary pastoral purpose of this revelation to the churches, he says, is so that they and we now would endure, persevere. So we now look into this vision and ask, what does Christ reveal for the sake of the church's endurance? Our first point is this. The branch will defeat and judge all of God's enemies. The vision opens with an address to each of the seven churches in their own letter. And then John is taken up to view God in His splendor upon a heavenly throne. And God is being worshipped by elders and by heavenly creatures that represent all of His people and all of creation glorifying Him on His throne. Let's enter that scene in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, 
To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So God himself is holding a scroll sealed with seven seals. This scroll is meant to resemble a Roman legal document like a will. And like a will could only be opened by the rightful heir, this scroll can only be opened by one who is worthy. But who could open this document that is held in the hand of Almighty God? Who could meet the qualifications necessary to carry out the work of the scroll? At first John despairs, surely there is no one worthy to carry out God's will. And then one appears the only one who is worthy to take what is in God's hands, like Arthur pulling the sword from the stone. And here we see the credentials of the only one worthy to carry out God's will. He is the Lion of Judah and the Root of Jesse, the perfect fulfillment of the messianic hopes of Israel, the one from David's line able to fulfill all the promises made to God's people. And yet, when the lion appears, he takes shape as a lamb, a sacrificial lamb that has been slain. The lion, the mighty king, is not just worthy by virtue of his royal lineage and his might, but by virtue of his ministry as an atoning sacrifice. As the prophets predicted, he is both the royal king and the suffering servant, a greater Messiah than anyone could ever have hoped for, the one who died in our place, who spilled his blood on the cross to take our punishment and rose again. And we see in Revelation that his atonement has indeed accomplished the amazing work he said it would. It has reconciled to God the far-flung people from every corner of the world and drawn them into the presence of God so near to Him that they are called a kingdom of priests and they gather with the angels to exalt Him, the Messiah, because He humbled Himself. He now deserves to be exalted. Jesus is shown to be truly worthy to open the scroll. And when the Lamb breaks the seal. We see the ministry for which he alone was worthy, bringing about the judgment of God to destroy all of his enemies. Throughout history, before and after Christ's first advent, we have seen the appearing of many enemies of God. Tyrants and influencers in society who have rejected the gospel and tried to snuff out God's people and their hope. In Revelation, the true and terrible source of all opposition against God comes into stark focus. We see this in Revelation 12. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. The dragon represents the devil, 
thrown out of heaven and raging upon the earth as an enemy of God. In the chapter that follows, the dragon hands over his power to a great beast who is commonly called the Antichrist. And this beast bestows its power on another, a false prophet. Of course, here we are into the details that are commonly debated. Whether the objects these beasts represent have come or will come. Whether these visions represent a single enemy or many enemies throughout history. So also is the identity of the woman and the child in the passage we just read debated. Which represent the hope that God is preserving for his people through Jesus Christ. A hope that the devil and his servants are desperate to snatch away and destroy. But whoever the beast represents, it is clear that behind the wicked ruler and his false prophet is the power of the devil himself. The devil establishes history's greatest antagonists and oppressors for the purpose of snuffing out the gospel and God's plan for Christ and his people. For these churches that were waiting for the return of Christ, and indeed for us, this is not a very comforting image. God does not comfort his people by diminishing the picture of opposition against them. In fact, he shows us the opposition is greater than we could ever have imagined. As Paul reminded the Ephesians, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but something greater, powers and principalities. Revelation puts into full view the spiritual power of Satan that operates behind his oppressors in the world. But this is not to say that God is not going to provide comfort but he also wants to provide warning. Because when the terror and the might of these enemies is revealed, it is clear that most people in the world will believe with their limited view on their own day and age and culture that there could certainly be nothing more powerful than the beast, that the beast could not be resisted. John says that many people will worship the beast, be marked as its people, and destroy all who oppose him. Even while John is making this prophecy, some of these churches had already felt a similar pressure, a pressure which John tells them will only get worse. And there is a serious warning for the churches here. Don't give in to the world's perspective, to succumb to despair, or to decide that you might as well go along with their wickedness. Whenever the beast itself actually appears in history, we can rightly apply a warning, as was given to the churches, to anyone who is complacently going with the flow of this world and its rulers because they have kept their eyes fixed on what is right in front of them, their culture around them, where the hold of the enemy seems too pervasive and too great for anything else to be greater or more true. John wants those churches and Christians to hear a warning. But he also has great comfort to offer those who are holding strong against the pressures and oppression of this world. Yes, the beast looks great. But even when the enemy seems greatest, our king is infinitely greater. Even when the enemy seems most successful, the victory of the true king is no less secure. 
Beginning with the breaking of the seven seals, the Lamb is authorized by God to work terrible judgment against all those who have rejected Him. As the seals are broken, conquest, war, famine, plague, and utter destruction pour out. And then when the beast rises, it is only given a short reign before the Messiah, the lion and the lamb comes for him. Plagues and bowls of God's wrath are poured out on the wicked followers of the beast and on the throne of the beast itself. Then the beast appears with a prostitute called Babylon, the great city that makes the world drunk with pleasures. John tells his readers, the beast and the woman represent a city with seven hills ruled over by kings. Now his readers would be drawn to think of the Romans, their own persecutors. Whether or not this is a vision fulfilled in Rome or whether it telescopically points to a future opposition, the church is meant to see that the end of every enemy of God throughout all history, from beginning to end, from the least to the beast, is certain. All those who have given into sin and slavery to the devil will be thrown down. The prostitute city that led men astray is cast down. And then in history's most epic charge that we could never create in film or fiction, the branch of David rides forth. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh." Now John sees Jesus arrayed as a conquering warrior, terrifying and unstoppable before his enemies that once seemed so powerful. The Lamb rides forth in victory. And the greatest enemies the devil can establish are utterly defeated. The beast, 
the false prophet, and all those they have deceived are ensnared and crushed. And after this, the devil himself is locked up while the lamb reigns over him until Satan himself is ultimately punished following the beast into the lake of fire. Until that day, the devil is chained so that he cannot stop the kingdom of the branch. He cannot take away what the lamb has conquered. The kingdom of Christ is sure. The nature of this kingdom period called the millennium is also a significant topic of debate. But its main purpose in Revelation is to show that while the reign of the beast and the devil seemed great for a moment, the king from the line of David establishes a kingdom that is truly secure and lasting in a way that makes the reign of God's opponents seem small and pitiful. This is the sure promise of victory that is given to us in Revelation. It is a promise sealed in the gospel. As surely as Jesus died and rose again, that salvation will lead to ultimate victory for Christ and his people. Because Jesus was the lamb who went to the slaughter, he is the lion who will conquer. This is a warning to anyone who would bow to worldly powers during their brief moment in the sun, and an exhortation to those who are clinging to their hope in Christ despite the opposition of the world and the devil. But John also has words of exhortation and encouragement to the churches while the church waits for that coming day, for that ultimate day of victory. That is our second point. The branch guards his people for their eternal hope. Throughout Revelation, John gives sweet reminders to his readers. God has not forgotten their pain. Christ guards his people through all the tumultuous events of the book, and even their suffering is part of his ordained road toward their place in his victorious kingdom. Some of those whom the Lamb guards for himself, he does by taking them from the world, even in martyrdom. When the Lamb is opening the seals of the scroll, John sees martyrs who have died for sharing the gospel. And they cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe, and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. We've already seen how the Lamb works vengeance for the sake of his church. But while he does, these martyrs are told to rest. Through history, Christ receives to himself those whom he takes from this world takes out of its pains and persecutions. He takes them to give them rest until his victory is complete. John then sees throughout these trials a full number of people come in from both the tribes of Israel and from all the nations of the earth. These represent an exact number of saints that God has chosen to preserve for himself despite all tribulation. The Lamb does not lose one person who is given to him. We see in Revelation 7, 4 through 17. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 
And then he lists 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. And next he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the thrones and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Brothers and sisters, even for those who pass through the great tribulation, they can be confident that they are sealed by God and they belong to Him. The number of those whom He will keep and preserve is fixed. Not a one He plans to bring in, even from the furthest reaches of the world, the worst depths of sin through the worst tribulation will fail to come to Him and belong to Him forever. The battle will never become so great that He will lose any of His sheep. The war will never become so difficult that he will have to cut his losses and save any less than he hoped for. So mighty is Jesus in the face of even the greatest opposition that he will ensure that every single one of those that he plans to keep, he will keep. The hope of this multitude is sure because they are those for whom Christ died. They are those whose robes are washed in the blood of the Lamb. As the elder says, there is not one person who is justified by the blood of Jesus that will not persevere through all difficulty unto his eternal victory. Not one who is forgiven and cleansed by his atoning sacrifice will miss out on the spoils of his conquest. Even the enemies of his people And death itself will serve his will to bring in, to refine, and preserve the citizens of his kingdom. And just as the number of those saved by him is certain, so are the promises made to them. God has set aside for all those who trust in him, even if it is on the other side of persecution and death, a sure hope of a world without suffering, without hunger, or sickness, or thirst, or the trials of nature. When he has conquered every enemy, the Lamb will reign from a throne in the midst of his people, and he himself will be their shepherd, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And what is more, his people will share in his conquering. In the seven letters to the churches at the beginning of Revelation, 
Each is ended with a promise for those in the churches who hold true to Christ. And those faithful are called conquerors. If we are in Christ, and if Christ has conquered every enemy, we ourselves are called conquerors and given the inheritance of those who conquer with Christ. Revelation comes to a close. After all enemies are defeated, the devil himself is crushed, and then all the nations are rightly judged before Christ on his great throne of judgment. And then we see the final truth of which Revelation assures us. Our final point is this. The reign of the branch of David is certain and sweet and everlasting. As the angels blow their trumpets of judgment over the enemies of God, they declare with the final trumpet blast, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The devil and his greatest servants could not stop it. Christ's people were shepherded to receive it. And when all enemies have been crushed under his feet, the branch of David fully and completely comes into his own. This is the final hope for all the saints. It is the final hope of all those who trusted in God since the fall of Adam and Eve. Whether they were Old Testament saints looking forward to the promises of Messiah's coming, or New, Test- New Covenant saints looking back on the cross and then watching to see how that death and resurrection would fulfill the historical promises made by God to his people. John got a glimpse of how those promises would be beautifully and eternally, ultimately fulfilled. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. John sees a city descending from heaven, Jerusalem, appearing as a representative of all those citizens of her kingdom, prepared as a bride to be eternally united to Jesus. His people will be forever bound to him in fellowship. God himself, who cast Adam and Eve out of his personal presence in the garden, completes his plan for history to fully and completely dwell with his people again in perfect unity. And in his presence, sin and its consequences will be utterly banished. After Jesus has defeated every enemy, death itself will be cast away. All the pain and sorrow of this world will be a memory in the eternal kingdom where we dwell with our Savior. Revelation declares this, declares these wonderful things that we've already celebrated in our previous sermons. As Samwise Gamgee asked Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings after the enemy was thrown down and the battle was won, 
Is everything sad going to come untrue? And it is. The land is freed from the curse. Mountains, trees, and fields are untouched by sin once again. Christ's people are fully cleansed, justified, made holy, and glorified. The holiest presence of God fills the entire earth. The Garden of Eden is not just fully restored, it is magnified to touch all of creation. In Jesus' kingdom, the tree of life is again established, and now its life flows out to every corner of the world. Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The final promise of revelation is sweeter than we can fathom. Jesus' eternal reign forever and ever brings healing and life to all the world. We will worship him on his throne. And yet every single person in the kingdom united with Christ will themselves be reigning. Like those ordinary children who stumbled into the land of Narnia to find out that in that greater, more magical world they were kings and queens. These are not uncertain hopes. These are not things that might happen, that we wish would happen. They are fixed in history. This is God's plan for His Son, Jesus. And it is His plan for all of those who trust in Jesus, the laying low of every enemy, the preserving of God's people, and finally the establishment of an eternal kingdom of joy where the manifest presence of God touches every corner of the world and life unending will never be taken away from his people. So what can we who hold on now do as we consider these glorious revelations of our eternal hope? Brothers and sisters, we have now a sympathetic high priest, the one who dwells among the lampstands of his churches. We have now a good king who cares for our weaknesses. He knows that we are suffering. He knows that this world of sickness and death and opposition against his word and his gospel and his people makes us weary. He knows because he came into this world himself. He experienced those very things. He endured worse suffering than we could ever imagine. He gave us this revelation through John so we could remember our hope through our suffering. Just as the Old Testament saints endured exile and scorn and wicked rulers, 
Because God's prophets gave them hope that he would appear, we are meant to endure as we hope for the ultimate fruition of these promises we have in him. John exhorts his readers throughout the book that these things written in it are given for their endurance. He repeats within his vision, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This call to endure comes with comfort and with warning. Just as it was given with comfort and warning to the churches that first heard the letter. They were tempted while Christ tarried to give in to heresy to adapt to the cultures that were persecuting them. The temptation still remains for us now to respond to our suffering and our persecution by giving in to this world and its treasures and its pleasures, to allow syncretism and compromise because the opposition to Christ in this world to be hated and despised and rejected, to lose what we have in this world for him is just too much for us to endure. The devil and his servants just look too great. We act out of fear, magnified by our own temptation to sin, and we decide we must align with the beast. And so many churches have prosperity preachers who choose to go in for the world's pleasures and treasures, for gold and power. Narcissistic celebrity pastors who want the popularity of this world and liberal churches that chase the ever-moving goalposts of a progressive culture that hates God because they are afraid more than anything else of being called bigots. We must always be on guard to resist the pleasures and the pressures of this world. Even the great beast, the strongest of the adversaries the devil can muster, puts up no contest for Christ. The lamb is certainly victorious. And it would be infinitely more fearful on the day of judgment to have him as your enemy than the beast and all this world. So believe in him. Turn to the lamb. Swear your allegiance to him. And then endure on the side of the lamb. Do not give in to this world even in the moments when it looks like it has the upper hand. They offer nothing to you. Christ is the lamb that was already slain for you and risen from the dead if you believe and trust in him alone. And if you have come and clung to the lamb, even when it's hard, even when you are suffering and hurting and losing you can do so with a sure hope, a serious hope founded on a deep-rooted, firm faith and a deep-rooted, firm joy that doesn't ignore the trials of this world but holds strong through them. Brothers and sisters in Christ, some of you are mourning loss. Many of you are grieving a world of ill health and fear, which either plagues you personally or has led to a restriction of many of the freedoms that you enjoy. Many of us are worried by the strength of God's enemies and their seeming power in our culture. Many of us are worried by the future. What will it be like for the church, for our children? 
uncertainty terrifies us. But God wants us to keep our eyes on what is certain, what is fixed by Him as the sure outcome of history. In a world of pain and death, we remember at Advent that God is the God who surely answers our hope. As surely as He came, as surely as He did die for us and rise again, He will return and He will reign forever and ever. The whole earth will be His, His people cleansed, the presence of God touching all corners of the earth and shining like the sun. And that hope is ours to cling to as we endure today. So we say with John at the close of Revelation, Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may Jesus Christ return soon. And as he tarries, Father, we know that he does so so that more might be brought into his kingdom. So I pray that we, instead of being fearful, would be vigilant and bold in the gospel to proclaim this good news that more might be drawn to Christ. Not just the good news of what he has accomplished, but the good news of what he is accomplishing and will indeed accomplish. We thank you that our hope is sure. Father, I pray for those who are tempted by a world that truly is strong and seems great and seems undefeatable, who are afraid, who are hurting and don't feel like they can persevere anymore. Father, be their strength, and as they open your word, be their hope. And may we hold to hope together, strengthened by each other, as a church family, awaiting the glorious return of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that the day will come, that the celestial city will be reached by every pilgrim whom you have set out upon the road to you, and that we shall live and even reign, beholding the sweet face of our Savior Jesus Christ forever and ever, as those who have gone before us already do, those whom you have given rest. We glorify Jesus as we glorify you for this wonderful plan for all of history. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.